Well, I would like for you, if you would please, to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17 is where we will be reading from verse 16 down through verse 34. Uh, to be quite transparent, this was not my intention on this Easter Sunday. In fact, it wasn't but a, about two days ago uh, when I thought I was continuing in the Gospel of Luke with a theme on the resurrection that the Lord directed me uh, to this passage. We find similarities in the fact that the author of the book of Acts is also Luke, whom we are studying together through the Gospel of Luke right now. And I encourage you to come back next Sunday as we continue through that theme together. But this morning, let's look together at Acts chapter 17 as we consider the subject, responses to the resurrection. Responses to the resurrection. Verse 16, Acts 17, the Word of God says that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... That is his partners, Silas and Timothy. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. They said these things because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to it all by raising him from the dead. Now, when, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'd like to hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Diocese, the Arapagite, and a woman named 
Damaris and others with them. Our, our scripture text this morning takes us to the city of Athens, Greece, known for its artistic skill and architectural beauty. It would appear that Paul is spending some time sightseeing while he is waiting for his partners, Silas and Timothy, to join him. We read about that in verse 15 of chapter 17. He's by himself here in Athens waiting for Timothy and Silas to come again. But while he is out sightseeing, it wasn't the buildings and statues that captivated his mind. Rather, it was that the city of Athens was filled with idolatry. He was deeply troubled to see that the majority of the people who were living there were so blinded to the reality of the one true God. A couple of things that you need to know about Athens during this time. At first, it was an intellectual city. Philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, among many others, taught there in the city of Athens. It was the philosophical center of the ancient world. And what was unique about this time in history is that you didn't necessarily go to a university as much as you went and studied under an individual. So this is what people came to Athens to do. Scholars from all over the ancient world made their home in Athens and students paid money to sit at their feet, the feet of these philosophers, and learn from them. The whole city was about that. In fact, last uh, evening as I was winding down my Saturday night as a good 40-year-old would do, I tuned into the Smithsonian Channel. As as I'm watching the Smithsonian Channel, I see an hour-long program about Greece. And there they highlighted Athens and all these continued architectural structures that pay so much attention to these ancient intellectual philosophers. It was an intellectual city. It was also a pluralist city. By that I mean... Let me put this in modern terms. Every chariot in town had a bumper sticker with the word coexist. Because in Athens, the philosophical worldview was the mixing and matching of all sorts of religious and spiritual perspectives. In fact, all of the great buildings and statues were devoted to gods and goddesses especially their many pagan temples that they specifically built to dedicate to the next God that came along, the next God that was created that they learned about who was, who was on the list of so many other gods that they accepted. Now, it was sarcastically said, but with some truth, that during this time, it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man in Athens. And even though that was sarcastically said, I, I say it with understanding some truth about it because historians tell us that there were at this time 30,000 statutes of gods and goddesses in a city whose population was really only about 10,000. This is... What Paul means when he says, as I walked through your streets, I saw the city full of idolatry. So here's Paul. He's alone in the city of Athens, and he's taking it all in. And in the process, he becomes overwhelmed by how much their hearts are in actual fact hungering for God, but yet their souls were empty and starving. 
For in all their intellectual and pluralistic pursuits, they remain ignorant to the one true God, Jesus Christ. So Paul could not stay silent. The, the, the text tells us that he visited a local synagogue, a, a Jewish gathering place. And then, after visiting the synagogue, he went into the marketplace. The marketplace, the, the place where all of these philosophers and people would gather and talk. And we think of sometimes a marketplace being a, a, a market, like a, like, like a Publix or a food line or something of that sort. This was a totally different place. It was a, it was a gathering other area in the city. Picture it more like instead of a grocery store, like a Starbucks. A place people meet together, have coffee, and talk about all things related to life. In fact, the text tells us that that's all the people did. They just got together and talked about everything that they could think of related to philosophy and life. And it's here in the marketplace, verse 18 says, that Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In a culture where there were so many gods to choose from, Paul focuses on the defining characteristics that separates the one true God from all the other gods and goddesses. The resurrection. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now we see that he simply begins by preaching Jesus. No doubt who he was, how he came, and what he did in terms of his earthly ministry. Perhaps Paul's preaching of Jesus was similar to what he said to the church at Philippi. When he said in, in summary, Jesus, who is God, emptied himself by becoming a man. And with humility and servanthood, he became obedient to the plan of God that God the Father had given to him. A plan that involved dying on a cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And because he became obedient to that plan, God has given him a name that is above every name. The name Jesus and it is at the name of Jesus that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the truth about who he really is. And who is he? He is the Lord of the universe. So he's simply preaching Jesus. Now, Luke, again, the writer of Acts, makes it a point to say that Paul, specifically in preaching Jesus, Preached the resurrection. The resurrection. Now the question is, of all the things that you could preach about Jesus, why preach the resurrection? Well, let me say two things to you. Number one, he preaches the resurrection because it is a fact. It is a fact. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. In Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. We, we sang a song about the gospel a moment ago. Perhaps you're wondering, what does that even mean? What, what is the gospel? Well, here's what Paul is saying. Here's the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried according to the scriptures. And that he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. This is what the Bible says. And here's what you need to understand about the Bible. This book, this entire book from beginning to end is the factual historical record of how God became man, died, was buried, and rose again for the sins of the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. So we need to come to the Bible in understanding this book for what it is. It's a history book. It's a nonfiction, a biographical account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And in case you're hearing about him for the very first time, let me tell you a little bit about what the history book says. God became man. That is, God left the throne of heaven, placed himself in the womb of a virgin where he was born perfectly without sin. Not much is said about his childhood, but the Gospels quickly begin to show us that around the age of 30, he began his earthly ministry. He preached the repentance of sin and the coming kingdom of God. He backed up his preaching about who he was as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, by performing miracles in front of the people. He also raised the dead. He calls the blind to see. Over and over again, he was performing miraculous works to show the people that he was God. He showed his love. He hung out with sinners. He gave hope and peace to those who believed in him, to those who followed him. But the history book tells us that he trained 12 men known as disciples in an intimate relationship to continue his gospel work, the same gospel work that we're doing this morning after his ascension into heaven. All the incredible and amazing things that Jesus did are recorded for us right here in this history book. But the religious crowds didn't like him. The spiritual people weren't too friendly toward him. In fact, during his entire ministry, they waited for the right opportunity to kill him. Why would they do it to what many have said is such a good man? Yes, he was a good man. He was a wonderful teacher. But he was more than that. If he was only a good teacher, a good man, or another religious leader, they would have left him alone. But they knew. They knew he was more than that. They saw him as an agitator. They saw him as a lawbreaker. They saw him as a religious hoax. To the religious leaders, Jesus did not fit in their box of what the Savior, Messiah, King of the Jews was supposed to be and do. So they manipulated his arrest. Jesus knows a thing or two about injustice. They manipulated his arrest. They persecuted him. They chose to violently crucify him. He had done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. He wasn't a criminal. He had never incited any political violence. In fact, he was perfect. There was no sin in him whatsoever. Yet they still nailed him to a cross. And on that cross, on Good Friday, he died, crying out at his last breath, it is finished. Now, why in the world, if these people murdered him, why in the world would he cry out, it is finished? Because listen, here's the awesome thing. His death was the plan of God. It was the only way to forgive sinners if God died. It was the only way to reconcile fallen men back to God as if God himself shed his perfect blood. Acts chapter 2 tells us that this Jesus, they delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yes, they crucified and killed him, but it was God who had planned this. Why? Because John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but receive eternal life. So Jesus died. He was actually buried 
I mentioned this Friday night. It's very important that we understand that because on Easter Sunday, Jesus was not resuscitated. He rose from the dead. He died. He was buried. Day one went by. Day two went by. But on day three, the same God of heaven who delivered him up to the definite plan and and foreknowledge of God also raised him up raised him up from the dead, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. Friends, this is a fact. This happened. This happened. Why is Paul at Starbucks, so to speak, preaching the resurrection of Jesus to all of these intellectually educated people? Because he needs them to know that it is a fact that Jesus lived. It is a fact that Jesus died. It is a fact that Jesus gloriously rose again from the dead. It really happened. And not only do I know that it's true because of the record of this history book, but I know it's true because of the eyewitnesses who saw him. Again, we don't have time to turn there this morning, but perhaps you'd write down 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because in 1 Corinthians 15, we see a whole list of eyewitnesses who saw him after he resurrected. In fact, Paul tells us that he appeared to Peter, the women close to him, the the rest of his disciples. In verse 6, he says he appeared to over 500 people at once. So if if we were to have a courtroom scene this morning, we have at minimal, at minimal 500 people that we could bring in from the past to all give testimony that, yep, it happened. I saw him. I saw him. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the women who followed him. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to 500. He appeared to his half-brother, James. He even appeared to Paul, who's writing the letter. You see, Paul is preaching the resurrection because it is a fact. It really happen. But why else is Paul preaching the resurrection? Because look right here. Not only is it a fact, not only is it a fact, but the resurrection is our only hope. That's why he's preaching it. It's a fact and it is our only hope. Listen to the word of God in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is is vain. What I'm doing is a waste of time. Some of you may think that already, but that's beside the point. If Christ had not raised from the dead, you're wasting your time, I'm wasting my time. He says if Christ had not raised from the dead, then any faith that we have, it's it's foolish, it's foolish. If Christ had not raised from the dead, he said we're misrepresenting God, especially if we testified that he raised Christ. Because if we say that he raised Christ, but then he actually didn't raise Christ, then your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. And let me tell you something else Paul says. If Christ had not risen from the dead, then everybody else who's died also is condemned forever in hell. In other words, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we have no hope. Sin is victorious. Yeah, that that sin that you and I, even as Christians, battle with every day, it's going to ultimately win. Christ had not risen, then death has won. So uh, let's just all die and just be condemned for eternity if Christ didn't rise from the dead. But Paul made one point very clear in 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians when he said all of these scenarios to get us to thinking about what would happen if Christ had not. He says, oh, but let's not go any further because I want to tell you something. Christ did rise from the dead. He did. And his death and his burial and his resurrection is the only hope for fallen humanity to be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and live eternally in heaven with him forever. Paul is preaching the resurrection because he knows, he knows that if they would simply turn from their idols, repent of their sins, and trust in the resurrection of Jesus, then they would receive a living hope that this world could not explain. That's what Peter called it. It's what Zephanie just sang about. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God of our Father, The Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living 
hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. I wonder this morning, do you have that living hope? Have you been born again? So Paul's in the marketplace preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And at first, at first he has two types of reactions. Because there, there's a couple of groups here that are listening to him. These, these guys like to hang out at Starbucks a lot. It's the Epicureans. Uh, the Epicureans was a, was, was, a, was a group of philosophers that saw life from a worldview that, 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 that it was all about pleasures. And that's exactly what they did. They just lived up for the pleasures of life. They were materialists. Their, their motto was eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And, and they were okay with, with using that motto because they, they believed their philosophy, their worldview was that w- when we die, we just disintegrate. There, there's, there's no afterlife for anyone. So, so, so this group was hanging out. They were probably eating the uh, Frappuccinos. And, and then you have the Stoics. The Stoics, they, they were pantheist. Pantheist. They believe that God is in everything. God's in this pulpit. God's in that plant. God's in that tree. God's in that chair. He, he's, he's everywhere. They believe God is everything, and he's everywhere in everything. But they also lived apathetically. They, 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 they were fatalist. Yet, ironically, at the same time, they were virtuous people. So, so these, these two groups, okay, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they're, they're sitting in this marketplace where Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they, they've just simply had enough. In fact, verse 18, look at it there in your Bibles. They called him a babbler, a babbler. An ignorant man, that's what a babbler is, an ignorant man who is speaking a bunch of nothingness. Some of you women just found a new word for your husband. What are you babbling about today? Well, that's what these two philo- philosophical groups were accusing Paul of. But, but, but there was a group of Athenians who wanted to hear more. It was particularly a body of people known as the Areopagus. Now, what was the Areopagus? Now, in the reading, you might have thought it was a different city, but it actually is still in Athens. This, this was an authorized intellectual body of city leaders who were responsible for setting the civil and spiritual life in Athens. Much like a town council, if you will. They they invite Paul to come down to their court called the Areopagus and speak more about this God named Jesus who rose from the dead. So, so you have this group over here laughing at him, saying he's a babbler, he's speaking a bunch of nothingness, but, but, but this representative over here of the Areopagus says, hey, why don't you come down here to the court? We'd like to hear more about this new God. No doubt the idea was we'll just add him to the many other gods and goddesses that we have in town. We'd like to know more. So, Paul goes down the, the Areopagus, and when he addresses them, he certainly continues his teaching about Jesus and the resurrection, but this time with an invitation. An invitation to repent of their sin and believe in Christ. And so, here's what he begins by saying. Look at it there in your Bibles. Verse 22, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious, very spiritual, very spiritual. I've been touring the city. I saw Aristotle Court over here, and I went to the Pantheon and and all these things. It's obvious to me that you are all very much spiritual people. You're, You're very religious. By the way, we could say the same thing about the town you and I live in today. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, I I perceive this morning, having been raised among you all of my life, that we are a city that's very religious, a city that's very spiritual. That's how he begins. And he goes on to say in verse 23, that as I was passing along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar. With this inscription, it read, to the unknown God. 
if you ever visited uh, Washington, D.C., and you visit the tomb of the unknown soldier. Very similar here, very similar. Here's a statute that, that is erected in Athens, and it just says, in case we've missed any gods, we made this for the God we don't know about. That's how religious and spiritual are, to the unknown God. So Paul says this, what you therefore worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. I, I really like what he's doing here. He's saying, the God you don't know, I know. And good news, I'd like to tell you about him. It's actually very interesting. Because when you think about it in the context of this city, how that they were so spiritual, yet they did not know God. It is a reminder to me that God will always be unknown to those who refuse to know him by faith. He will always be unknown to those who refuse to know him by faith. That is not to say this morning that Christianity is an anti-intellectual religion. Oh, no, we see very much so that what Paul is doing in the marketplace is he's reasoning. He's reasoning. He's showing them the intellectual fact through the history of the world, the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is not to say this morning that Christianity is anti-intellectual, but, but, what I am saying is that intellect alone will not open your eyes to him. The Athenians were very intellectual people. They were philosophers, but they were not seeing God and Jesus the only way that you can see him, by faith. Perhaps that's where you're at this morning. You want to see him. You want to know him, but you're trying to find him through intellect, through philosophy, through all these other gods and goddesses, these, these other options that the world throws out of you. I'm here to tell you, you'll never discover him unless you choose to see him through faith. So let me give you a summary of his sermon. It's a four-point sermon. He says in verses 24 through 26 that this unknown God that I'm telling you about, he alone created and sovereignly rules over the world. That's where he begins. And he emphasizes that he is the God. He is the one and only God. You, you've got a city full, full of gods and goddesses that aren't real. But let me tell you about the one true God. He created this whole world. He brought the first man into the existence. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, the planet that we live on. He is responsible for bringing it into existence and he is the one who holds it all together. He sovereignly rules over the world. But then the second point of his sermon was this. He's not a God somewhere off in the distance who doesn't want you to know him. In fact, point two is that this God has revealed himself to you in Jesus, but he cannot be sought or worshipped in any other way but Jesus. So God has revealed himself to you. He has revealed himself to you in Jesus. And if you want to know him, you have to find him through Jesus Christ. But here's where he brings in the invitation. He gets real serious. The third point of his message in verses, well, really just one verse, verse 31, is that he has this God who created and sovereignly rules, this God who wants you to know him through Jesus, he has a fixed day. There is a day marked on his calendar when he will judge the world. And what's he going to judge them according to? Perfect righteousness. In fact, fact, look at it. It's only one verse, verse 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. Who is that man? That man is Jesus. That God has a fixed day on his calendar, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe 100 years from now. But there is a fixed day on his calendar where every single person who has rejected him will stand before him and give an account of their righteousness in accordance to the righteousness of Jesus. That's a problem. Because ain't, and excuse my lack of intellectualism, there ain't a one of us who will make it out of that courtroom if our righteousness is going to be compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's perfect. And the last time I've checked, no one else who has ever lived is perfect. The point is, we're going to be held accountable to God. The Epicureans had it wrong. No, there's none of this eat, drink, be married, and we just die. No, eat, drink, and be merry if you want. But when you die, you will stand before the judge of the world. The God that he's saying in this context, you don't know. This is the God I'm telling you about. He's creator. He's sovereign. He's ruler. He is a revealer of himself to us in Jesus, and he is judge. And that's where we come to verse 30, because the fourth and final point of his sermon, which I'm sure he stood up and said, in closing, let me tell you, that this God commands you to repent of your idolatry and turn to him. That's verse 30. He commands people everywhere to repent of their sin. And here's, here's where the rubber meets the road, right? It's fine if you want to tell me all these things about him, but now you're actually saying that I have a responsibility that to be reconciled to this God, to be able to stand in that courtroom, not in my righteousness, but in Christ's perfect righteousness, therefore acquitted of all my sin. There's only one way that you and I can survive that judgment, and that is if we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes said it like this, everything is fine as long as we remain theoretical. But when we call for action, men begin to shift their posture and look at their watches. Perhaps in the Starbucks in Athens, it began to get a little uncomfortable. Well, it was really an aeropagus, but anyway. Now, the exclamation point on all of this, and then I am going to close. The exclamation point on all of this, the evidence that it's true, okay? The surety that God alone created and sovereignly rules the world, that he revealed himself in Jesus, that he's going to judge the world. Paul says here in verse 31, the proof that it is all true, that it is all truths is in the assurance, look at it, verse 31, in the assurance that God has raised Jesus from the dead, so Paul begins or ends where he began preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because it is the resurrection that proves, that proves that everything else Scripture says about the one true God has happened and will happen. How could they accept all of this as reliable fact because Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. The resurrection proves it's all true. How can I believe that a man in that Old Testament book, in the book of Jonah, was swallowed by a great fish? You know how I can believe it? Because Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. How can I believe that God spoke this world into existence in six 
literal days, everything was formed and he rested. How can I make sense? I can make sense of that because the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves everything else is true. How do I know that I'm going to die and stand before him? You know how you know you're going to die and stand before him? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And the resurrection, the resurrection proves, validates everything that this history book has said about him. Now, those of you who are used to my preacher are wondering, when is he going to get to point one? I know you're very, very worried. The title of my sermon this morning, now that we're done with the introduction, (laughs) I'm kidding. The title of the sermon is Responses to the Resurrection. So it's coming to the final verse, verse 32. Look at it there, Acts 17, verse 32, that we see the responses of this group of Athenians to the preaching of the resurrection. And frankly, it's the same response that's going to happen this morning. Three, three of them, all right? Here's the points. The first point is mockery and denial, okay? How did they respond to the resurrection of Jesus? Well, there was some who responded with mockery and denial. Verse 32, look at it. Now, when they had heard the resurrection, some mocked, some mocked. In other words... You got to be kidding me, right? That's crazy talk. This is foolish. No way I'm believing that this God left everything that was perfect and holy in his universe and his creation and his heaven and came down and born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died and then rose again. That's, that's, that's nonsense. So here's this group that mocked him, that denied him. They rejected the truth of Jesus and said no to the invitation to trust Christ. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to trust him. That's crazy. I can't believe that that actually happened. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is it so difficult for people to believe the resurrection? I think in my own mind that to believe that there is coming a day when they will be held accountable for God, that they're actually going to die, is what they struggle with the most. They don't actually believe they're going to die. They don't actually believe that they're going to stand before him. But let me remind you this morning that death is something that happens to all of us, not just other people. But we think that way, don't we? I'm not going to die. Yeah, they die. I'm I'm not going to die. Oh, let me remind you, Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for man to die once And after that comes the judgment. And those who have mocked and denied Jesus will not escape that judgment that is to come. What does God have to say about that decision of mockery and rejection? Well, Psalm 14 tells us that a fool says no to God. A fool says no to God. So so there was a group of people, and the Scripture seems to indicate that this was the majority. That mocked and denied. Second, second group, second response was intrigue but delay. Intrigue but delay. Look again, verse 32. Some mocked, others said, we will hear you again about this. We'd like to talk with you more about it, but, but not today. Perhaps another time. Now, I've said this is intrigue, but delay, but I think in reality what they're doing is kindly ignoring him, kindly ignoring him. They don't want to be obnoxious about the flat-out mockers and deniers and rejectors, but they they, want to send him off nicely. Thank you for coming. It was really good. You know, we'd like to hear more about what you have to say. Just, Just not today. Just not today. And as far as we know, they never did hear Paul again on this matter. They never did. In fact, the very next phrase here in verse 32 says that he went out from their midst. And where did he go? He left Athens altogether. He relocated to another city, a city in Corinth. So think about this. 
for the Athenian people who were intrigued but were not yet ready to trust Jesus, this turned out to be the case of a missed opportunity. A missed opportunity. Not on Paul the preacher's part, but on their part. Their, their delay was essentially denial. They, they're ignoring the message was actually them rejecting the message. But I want you this morning not to miss this opportunity. We have preached to you Jesus and the resurrection. And certainly there are going to be some in here who will mock and deny him. But listen to me. Those of you who are intrigued, those who are interested, those who might be tempted to kindly push me away, listen to me for just a moment. Listen to the word of God. Hebrews tells us today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. James said, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is like a mist. It appears for a little time, and then poof, it's gone. Behold, now, 2 Corinthians tells us, now is the favorable time. Now is the right time. Now is the moment for you to believe. Now is the day of salvation in your life. Don't tell me you'll deal with this later. Deal with it today. Deal with it now. Because every time you say not today, not now, you harden your heart just a little bit more. Every time you say no, it just becomes a little easier to say no again. You don't believe it? Look at your kids. The first word out of Jaden's mouth was no. Now he's really good at saying no. You have to deal with that because it's true in our spiritual life again. That the scripture teaches us that you can delay, you can delay, you can say no to God to the point that you develop a seared conscience. A conscience that was once sensitive but like a hot iron has been placed on it. It is now dead. Dead. A seared conscience. A very dangerous place where you can no longer hear the invitation of God. Where you no longer can feel the awareness of your own sin before him. Friends, listen to me. Don't be among those who ignore and delay. All right, here's the third group. Some, the majority, mocked and denied. The rest of the majority, intrigue, but delay. Kindly, we're not interested. Maybe we'll talk about it more later. But then there were some who thirdly believed and repented. They believed and repented. Verse 34, some men joined Paul and believed. And he names a couple of those women as well. It wasn't a large group. It wasn't, a large, it wasn't even the majority. But some truly believed the gospel of the resurrection and they came to Jesus in faith, repenting of their sin, believing in him. Most denied... Most delayed, but some believed. Now, now I, I know, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, that the way to him is narrow. And those who do choose to go that way are few in number. So I recognize, I recognize that even on this Easter Sunday, that it is possible that a, those among us who have never personally trusted in Jesus, that the majority may, may will deny his message altogether, or at least delay it until they think is a better time but just maybe but just maybe as with Paul in Athens there are some of you who will choose this day this day this moment right now to repent of your sin believe Jesus died was buried and rose again for you and follow him as the Lord of your life and here's what I want to tell you everyone who truly comes to Christ comes to Christ the same way the same way. I didn't have my way and you don't have your way. No, we all, we all walk the same way. And here's the way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is scripture now, Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, believe in the resurrection, you will be saved. It is with the heart we believe in him and are justified as our sin. That is, God forgives us as if we've never done anything wrong. 
When he looks at us, he doesn't see us. He looks at us, he sees Jesus. Well, how do I get him to see Jesus all over me? See, Jesus is righteousness instead of my unrighteousness. With the heart, believe and confess that he's Lord. And thereby, we receive the promise that we are saved. Are you saved? Have you responded with belief and repentance? Because we need to move from Athens to Charlotte for a moment. It was a nice journey. It was a nice tour. But let's, let's come back home for a minute. The same message is true. We cannot escape the reality of God. His creation reveals his existence to us. He has sought you out this morning through his son, Jesus. Today, he has given you an opportunity to repent. People everywhere around the building here at Laurel, repent of your sin. Trust Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. Because there's coming a day in which he will judge. In fact, I will go as far as to say that everybody in this room knows Jesus. At least now you do. Everybody in this room knows Jesus. The ultimate question is, how do you know him? Because you can only know him one of two ways. You either know him as your judge or you know him as your savior. Those who know him as savior will never know him as judge. Are you listening to me this morning? If you know him as your savior, you will never know him as your judge. But those of you who choose only to know him as judge by rejecting him, you will never know him as savior. So the question is, what are you going to do with the resurrection? Are you going to deny it? Are you going to delay it and put it off? Or will you believe? And I want to tell you right now, if you will simply here in just a moment, bow your head with me and in the quietness of your seat, say, Lord, I believe. I confess my sin to you. You are the one true God who died and rose again for me. Then I promise you, I promise you on account of that sincere faith, you will know him as Savior. When the rest of us bow our heads and pray and you say, no, not today. I cannot guarantee you, I cannot guarantee you that you will ever know him for anything different than judge. But in his mercy and grace, he has brought you to this point. Not to hear me, but to listen to him. And what is he saying to you today? He is saying, I love you. I gave my life for you. I came back from the dead so that you could have a living hope. Listen to what that guy's saying. Listen to what he's saying. Trust me. Believe in me. I don't want to be your judge. I want to be your savior. How will you respond?